Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Dave Allum, and a billion years ago, in that uh, brick part of the building over there, I was baptized um, as Mark Allum. They used my brother's name when I was baptized, so I'm not sure it actually took, but... Um, <laughs> So I've, I've been here for a while, and I know many of you, and so for some of you who are new here, um, my name is Dave. Uh, I am a middle school math teacher and, uh, and kind of part-time pastor at times and used to coach football as well, and uh, I think um, besides being married to, to Janice, the other, the other uh, job that I treasure the most is I am a grandpop of, of Asher. And um, he's going to be turning two soon. And uh, I've been doing some discipling of, of Asher as I've had an opportunity to have one day a week, Papa Daycare. So Papa Daycare is when uh, I, I get him about 8.30 and, and I keep him as, as long as I can, usually till 4.30 or 5. And I've been doing some, some discipling, trying to help him understand the things of life. And so uh, the other day we were listening to the radio, and he loves to sing, and the song Jack and Diane came on, and some of you know the chorus. The chorus goes, oh yeah, life goes on, you know, and I'm singing in the top of my lungs, and we're just having a good time. Well, he picks up on this, right? So, so later on in the, the weekend, he's, he's riding with his parents in the car, and apparently the song came up, and here's this little two-year-old in the back seat being discipled by his papa, singing, oh yeah, Life goes on. I don't know if you got the gravel of the voice, but at least he's understanding a little bit about life. So, but that's really a, a, a job that I really, really enjoy. I wish I could do it every day. But uh, that's a little bit about me for those of you who don't remember me. Um, so today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. And so turn or swipe there. Uh, first 14 verses of chapter 9. And... Uh, I just want to start out telling you about a story that I read this week. Um, I read a story about a woman named Esther who decided to stop being a Christian. She grew up in a, in a fundamentalist church, um, 12 years of Christian school, you know, with uh, her religion classes and youth group, the whole, the whole works. But something turned her off where she said, you know, I'm done being a Christian. Well, what was that? What turned her off? In her story, she said it was guilt. She felt guilty all the time. You see, she had learned early on about original sin. Uh, original sin is, is something that Adam passed on, to, not Adam LaRue, but Adam, um, <laughs> that Adam passed on to us, Adam and Eve, when they chose to disobey the Lord. And that sin is now something we inherit um, so that man basically has a, a tendency, a bent towards going his own way. She knew about original sin. She learned also that everyday sin displeases God. She knew she wasn't perfect. She never would be. And so she felt guilty all the time. And as a result, she grew to really dislike herself. She made a habit to lie and and cover up and conceal mistakes and, and feelings. And in her mind, the religion of Christianity made her a guilty, depressed person. And how did she deal with that crushing guilt? She just decided to make it disappear. 
She decided guilt doesn't exist. It's, it's not real. The tenets of Christianity aren't real. They were just invented to control people with guilt. To her, guilt was this phantom construct where she said, she, she said you know what, it's, it's not real. I'm just going to decide to never feel guilty again. And her article was entitled, Goodbye Religion, Goodbye Guilt. Well, wouldn't it be great if we could all just take our problems and make them disappear and make them unreal? <laughs> we can't do that. I do feel bad for Esther because somewhere in her discipleship, somewhere in the teaching, whether it was at church or at home or, or through trauma, she missed the truth that if there was ever a person who could be free from guilt and live every day guilt-free, it would be the Christ follower, right? It would be the person who follows Jesus. The freest people on the planet ought to be Christ followers. Somewhere she had missed that. You see, God imprinted us with, with his image. We're we're, we're told that we were made in the image of God. And, and what that entails, among other things, is a sense of right and wrong. Scripture says in Romans 1 and 2 that some people suppress the activity of their conscience and actually seal, uh, sear their conscience so that they're desensitized to right and wrong. They don't hear their conscience anymore. We're not talking about those people today. We're talking about people like you and I, we hear that voice, we sense when we've done something wrong, and we feel guilty about it. We've missed the mark. And so today we're going to talk about how do we obtain a clear and a clean conscience because, as Esther shows, a guilty conscience can haunt us, it can debilitate us, it can ruin our lives. Now God tells us in Hebrews 9 how we can live free and how we can have our conscience cleansed. Now, last week, um, Pastor Adam showed us a little bit about the Old Testament or the Old Covenant or the First Covenant, as the writer to the Hebrews calls it. It wasn't a bad covenant. In fact, God made that covenant with all of its rules and its regulations. Why? To draw people into a relationship with himself. And one of the purposes, one of the many purposes of the Old Covenant was to uncover in in the people, their need for God, that they couldn't measure up to his perfection, and so they needed God. It was to be a teacher or, or a signpost that's pointing people forward to a new covenant, a new way that was permanently and all-sufficient. And of course, we know that new covenant is in Jesus Christ. But the old covenant, the purpose of that was to, to point us forward in that way to show us how we can relate to a holy God, even though we know in our own hearts that we're anything but perfect, anything but holy. Much like us today, the people were pointed in that direction. Yes, God is loving and God is just and God is merciful, but he's also holy. So how are we supposed to be able to relate to him when we have this sense of guilt, when we have this idea that we've done something wrong. Well, the writer to the Hebrews, or what you and I would call the Jewish Christians of the first century, 
attempts to explain all this by, by looking at what they were very familiar with, and that is the Old Testament tabernacle and all of its rich symbolism. Again, that's something they were familiar with. We are not as familiar with the Old Testament tabernacle in 2022. And we've got a nifty one right here, but the Old Testament tabernacle had a lot more to it than just being a tent. And so in order to answer this question, how do I clear a guilty conscience? We're going to ask three questions. First of all, what are the symbols of the Old Covenant that the writer in Hebrews 9 refers to? What are those symbols? What realities do they point to? And number three, how does Jesus fulfill them and then provide the way for us to a clear conscience? How does that all work? So let's go to Hebrews 9, and let's just read the first five verses of Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, I'll begin, verse 1. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we can't discuss these things in detail right now. That's what the writer in, to the Hebrews said. Now, for, for a lot of you, that, that language might as well have been you know, Greek. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on there. They understood it, so I'm going to take just a few moments to help us understand some of what the symbolism is pointing to here. So the tabernacle proper was a small tent structure. It was only 15 feet wide and 45 feet long. It's actually smaller than this tent. And it was surrounded by this, this fabric wall, which was about 75 feet by 150 feet. It's just big enough to contain our seating area right here. So there was this wall of fabric, and inside was this tent called the tabernacle. There was an entrance in the outer wall that only the priests could go through, only the priests. And when they entered, in front of them was the, this big bronze altar for burnt sacrifices, and behind that was this, this big bronze bowl for, for washing. And that cleansing bowl stood in front of the tent the tabernacle, the 14 by 45 foot tent. Well, there was another entrance point there into what's called the holy place. And if you walked into that holy place, to your right would be a table with bread on it, and to the left would be this candlestick, and then directly in front would be this altar of incense. And behind it was another door. They call it the veil to the innermost room, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, which was only 15 feet by 15 feet. That's a small garage. That was the most holy place, and inside of that was the golden Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark was Aaron's staff, which was a walking stick that had miraculously budded. Even though it was dead, it was a dead stick. It miraculously budded, and then also in there were the Ten Commandment stones, and a, a gold jar of manna, the, the food that God had used to sustain the people as they wandered through the wilderness. And the ark, or, or this big box, was covered with a special 
covering called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. And attached to that cover was um, a pair of angelic beings carved out of gold. And they were facing each other with their wingtips touching. So this is stuff that they were all familiar with because they were Jewish Christians in the first century. We have to kind of wrap our heads around it a little bit. Now, all of this was portable because the Israelites had to carry it on their way to the promised land. And God's presence went with them out of Egypt uh, in the form of a, a pillar of cloud during the day, and at night it was a pillar of fire, which were pretty amazing sights to see. And when the pillar of clouds stopped during the day, it was time uh, to set up camp. Now, I want to show you here in, in 2022 <laughs> at least four realities that, that these symbols, these ancient symbols point to spiritually. They all start with the letter P. So if you're taking notes, you can write down four letter P's. And these are the realities I want to show you. So so I want you to think about this now. The first thing that they did when the pillar of cloud stopped was to set up the walls, that, that 75 by 150 foot wall framework, and then inside they set up the tabernacle. And then three tribes of Israel were to the east, three tribes of Israel camped out to the west, three more to the north, and three more to the south. Now think about that setup. This isn't just being good at logistics. Think about that setup. The tabernacle was in the center of the camp. And that's the way it was set up every time they stopped. That's the way God told Moses it should be. The presence of God was prominent in the camp. And that's the first P, God's prominence. This whole setup was showing that God was to be prominent in the life of the nation. He was in the center of the camp. Now, I don't know if we can call this a symbol, but it surely is symbolic. God is central to everything that they were and every place that they would go. God was in the center of the camp. He was prominent. That's the first P. It pointed to God's prominence. And that's the first big reality that these symbols of the Old Covenant point to. What God says goes. He is central. He is integral. He is essential. He's the center of the camp. Reality number one, God's prominence. Now let's look inside the ark. The writer of the Hebrews told us there's some special things inside the ark. There's Aaron's staff. And Aaron's staff points to God being the source of new life. It was just a dead stick that had budded miraculously. God is the source of new life. And that jar of manna, I'd point to the fact that God is the source of our sustenance. He carries us through. And those commandment stones... That pointed to God being the source of all truth, the source of all truth. The contents of the ark, those three things in the ark, point to this one idea that God is the provider. That's the second P if you're taking notes. God's provision. We have God's prominence and we have God's provision. He kept his people alive. He fed them. He kept them hydrated. He gave them his word. God is the provider. Now, now, reality number three, as we think about the different symbols here, right in front of the most holy place was this altar of incense. And, and that represents the unceasing prayers of God's people. God's people have a great need for prayer. That's how we communicate with him. And that's the third thing. The people's 
prayer. The incense was burned in the morning, and it was burned at, burned at twilight, so there was this continual fragrance going on, and it was to point to their continual need to be in prayer, their need for God and communicating with him. Prayers, number three. And that there's lots more, and we don't have the time to go through all of this, but the fourth reality that can be seen from a number of the symbols uh, here in this tabernacle is that the people, for them to relate to God, they needed pardon. And that's the fourth P. We've got God's prominence, we've got God's provision, we've got the people's prayer, and the need for the people's pardon. That's why the sacrificial system was set up. God was to offer mercy or forgiveness from his own mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, for his people's pardon. So God's prominent. He's our provider. The people have a need for prayer, and the people have a need uh, for pardon. And those are just four of the many, many realities that the people of God should have seen in the symbols, and they should have been experiencing. Now, some of them did. You read some of the Psalms of David, and, and he experienced those things. But we know how quick the realities can devolve into ritual and how sacrifices of praise can very easily turn into sacrifices of performance. And the story of the Old Testament is how over and over again this happened in the life of the nation. They missed out on what God's, God was offering to them in reality. You know, we just celebrated the 4th of July and uh, many of you, I'm sure, set out your American flag, and, and we waved it in the park uh, last week as we were listening to the patriotic music at the park in Souderton. You know, that flag is really just a collection of symbols, right? Thirteen stripes stand for the 13 original colonies. There are 50 stars. They represent the 50 states, right? But how many of us know what the actual colors represent? The red, the white. And the blue. Some of you may, may. I think I was told this once. I had to actually go look it up because I forgot what they symbolize. The red symbolizes the valor required to uphold this new country. The white stands for the purity and the innocence when the nation was founded and when it was birthed. And the blue represents the justice that was to be held forth from the day the colonies declared their independence. I mean, I knew about the stripes and I knew about the stars, but I forgot the symbols of the colors. And the people of Israel were the same way. Some of the symbols, they kind of knew what they meant, but over time, they forgot the realities behind the symbols, and they missed out on what their relationship to God could be. But let's not be too hard on them, okay? Sometimes I feel like I can be that way when I see them messing up over and over again. I forget that I do the same thing. Imagine what they saw every time they set up camp. They saw the ark being carried, the symbols being hauled into some central area, and then the walls went up. The tabernacle went up, and the ark was placed behind three doors, right? The door to the wall, the door to the tabernacle, and then the door to the most holy place. So the ark was placed behind three walls. They knew just from the setup that there were three walls between them and God. Hebrews 9, 6, and 7. Let's read that real quickly. Imagine what that must have felt like. Hebrews 9, verse 6 and 7. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, 
and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. How would you feel about relating to a God that put himself behind three walls? I mean, you had the huge column of smoke during the day and the tornado of fire at night, but you really had no access to him. Verses 6 and 7 said, once it was set up, one of the things they realized was the, whole, the, the, the high priest was the only one who could go in there, and that only once, once a year. Once a year, one guy. Never without blood offered for himself and for everyone else, but still it was just one guy, once a year, got into the presence of God. So God is with you because you can see the cloud during the day. You can see the fire at night, but he's inaccessible to you. Only the high priest once a year got in. What is going on? Let's read the next verse, Hebrews 9, 8. The Holy Spirit was showing, so the Holy Spirit is teaching through the tabernacle, The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way had not been fully disclosed. The way. I think about Jesus saying, I am the the way, the truth, and the life. So God is with you, but he's inaccessible to you because he's behind three doors. The the way into the most holy place, that is God's presence, was not fully disclosed under the old system. So full access to God was really not available to the people while the tabernacle was standing. So let's read on. Let's read on to verse 9. This is an illustration For the present time, okay, so for those of you who think, well, the Old Testament doesn't have a whole lot to do with us. First of all, the Holy Spirit was teaching through the Old Testament. It says that in verse 8, correct? And then verse 9, it says, it starts out, this is an illustration for right now. So there's application here for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered back then were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order or until the time of the new covenant. We've got this illustration for the present time. The Holy Spirit's showing this. He's Holy Spirit's pulling meaning out of this. And what is he saying? He's saying that their performance and, like theirs, ours, our performance will not give us a clear conscience. It will not give us full access to God. We can't work our way through those three doors by our performance. That's not the way. Gifts and sacrifices are insufficient to clear a guilty conscience, even if it's the guilty conscience of a worshiper. This is somebody who wants to worship God. Now listen, this this is as true for us as it was for our Old Testament brothers and sisters. Sacrificing for God does not clear your conscience. Serving God does not clear or cleanse your conscience. Even sitting with God in a quiet time every day, that practice is not enough to clear a guilty conscience. Now, hear hear me carefully here. That performance of sitting and reading the daily bread, daily bread is awesome, 
But that practice is not enough to clear a guilty conscience. You can't clear a guilty conscience by coming to church regularly, reading that devotional page daily, giving uh, time, talent, or money. It's not enough to clear the guilt away. Our performance doesn't do it. In fact, no performance will. No meditation, no amount of good karma. Even the Old Testament Testament prescribed rituals were not enough to clear the conscience. That's what the Holy Spirit is teaching. But all the symbols are pointing toward the character of a holy God and his beloved but inadequate people separated from him by walls. What's, What's happening? What is he trying to say? Well, those walls aren't just linen walls. They're not just walls made of of animal hides or canvas. Those walls are really fashioned by our own sin. They're fashioned by our guilt. The many times that we've missed the mark of the glory of God that he has planned for us, those walls really are our sin, keeping us from him. Now, that's a sad and a desperate realization right? Imagine being one of those wilderness wanderers and the cloud stops. You know, God's with you, but then the walls go up. Well, this is where the good news comes in, right? Because all of that is to drive me to God with a great need for him because I can't get through those walls. And Romans 5.8 says, it's at this very point that God demonstrates his love. Because Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, if you know it, say it, Christ died for us. See, it was all pointing to our need. And then here comes the Messiah to fulfill all of the symbols with a, with a new covenant. And so in the language of the Jewish tabernacle and the Old Covenant, the writer of the letter of the, uh, to the Hebrews next explains how Jesus the Messiah is the reality to all the symbols that they were familiar with. He is the explanation. He's the anticipation. He is the exaltation of, of every symbol that the reader remembered and forgot. He's the exaltation of everything that you could hope for in being able to have a clean heart before God. Look at verses 11 through 14. Romans 9, I'm sorry, Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. There's another tabernacle, people. And it's real, but it's not part of this creation. It's in heaven. It takes some time. You read some parts of the book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation, and you'll see a description of the real tabernacle in heaven. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So he is the priest that goes through the veil into the most holy place that is God's presence, only once, only needed to do it once, and he used his own blood because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, look, cleanse, how much more then will he cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? See, Jesus, if there is a fifth P, and this is it, is our high priest. He is the highest priest. He is the last priest. A priest, you know, stands before God on behalf of others. And so here, Jesus stands before his Father on our behalf. He is the greater priest, greater than any other that has ever lived. What qualifies him to do that? He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He wasn't from the tribe where the priest came from. Jesus lived a perfect life, and so only he is able to walk into God's presence and stand for us. So here he is, Jesus, the source of new life, like Aaron's rod, the source of truth, like the Ten Commandments, the source of forgiveness as our high priest. He entered the tabernacle in heaven, the true most holy place where God is enthroned, with his own blood sacrificed on the cross, and there he pays for all sin, every guilty conscience with that perfect sacrifice. Do you guys remember what happened on the night of his death? Well, there's a lot of things that happened. But I read in in Matthew, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He died voluntarily. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. No human could do that. Literally, the walls came down when Jesus died. As if God himself from heaven reached down and unzipped the wall that kept the people away in the temple Full access to God is now available because the perfect sacrifice was made by a perfect priest in the holiest place. And verse 8 said that the way into the most holy place was not disclosed. It was not fully open in the Old Covenant. Now it is. Full access to God because of our high priest, Jesus. He went through a greater tabernacle, not the one in the desert, but the one in heaven in God's presence. That's what he went through. And he made the greatest sacrifice ever made, the death of a perfect man, his own life in a sinful world. He gave his own life as a ransom for us, perfect sacrifice. And it is this great high priest who entered a greater tabernacle to give the greater sacrifice who can cleanse our conscience. Verse 14. To wrap it up, when he is prominent, he becomes the provider. He provides the answers to all of our prayers, and he grants us the pardon that we ourselves cannot manufacture. Let me ask this question. Do you ever feel like God is, like, with you, but he's inaccessible to you? When I know he's with me, but it's like he's behind three walls. They knew what it was like. When I sin, my guilt activates. I know I've done something wrong. And I feel like there's a wall up between me and the Lord. What do we do? 
when that happens? A couple things. Number one, realize, first of all, your performance won't correct things. Even as a Christ follower, your performance will not clear your conscience. It accomplishes nothing. It all falls short. Church work, volunteer work, it's not enough because forgiveness is all because of his grace. So first of all, performance, it's not, not going to do it. Secondly, we need to make God prominent again. We've got to put him in the center of our camp again. God, be, be back in the middle of my camp again. Be prominent in my life. Move the other stuff out of the way to make way for him because he's essential to who you are. He is essential to where you're supposed to go. Let's put him, put him back in the center of our camp again. And we need to seek him as our provider. If you're saying my life is a mess, it's, it's, it's dead in the water. And I feel like God's there, but he's not there. You need to realize that Aaron's staff says, no, 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 no. My God provides new life even where there's dead things. Or if you're thinking I can't make any sense out of what's going on in my life, nothing seems to make sense, the commandment stones tell us differently. They tell us God has the answer because he's the source of truth. He's the source of truth. Or if you're thinking I don't, I don't know how I'm going to make it to the end of the month, I don't, I don't know how this need of mine is ever going to be met. Or even as you're praying for, for, for children or, or for friends, I just don't see where that need, how's that going to be met? Look at the jar of manna. God is the one that sustains. He sustains us even in the middle, in the middle of the wilderness. Go to God as your provider. And be praying that, that incense prayer that is, that is unceasing, and he can receive his pardon simply through confession. You know, pardon is not a matter of achieving. It is a matter of receiving. That was the whole point of the Old Testament symbols was the point to this holy God who was loving, but we can't get there. We need to receive his pardon because we can't achieve it. And then God makes us whole again. And, and why, the end of verse 14, then we can go serve him, serve our living God with a clear conscience. Now, he may tell you to reach out and make amends. He may tell you that you need to, do, do, um, you need to reconcile with somebody, and those are things you have to do, but that's not what gives you forgiveness. That is working out an act of grace that God has put in your heart. And when we mess up, we have this unlimited source of forgiveness from the greatest high priest that's ever been, who loves us so much that he made the greatest sacrifice that was ever made. And he's removed all of those walls. You know, Esther, with all of her religion classes, still felt guilty. But she didn't have to. Somewhere, sadly, she missed the verse in Romans 8, which says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That that wheel that keeps spinning of guilt and guilt and guilt. We're set free from that through Christ. 
And Jesus himself said, if the Son sets you free, if the Son sets you free in the presence of the Father, then you're free indeed. The Son is setting you free. You're no longer a slave to sin. And that's how we have the great privilege and the honor and the grace to live every day with a clean conscience because of the greater high priest who went through the greater tabernacle with the greater sacrifice. He bought it for us. Let's close in prayer. God, we are thankful that we do not have to wait for more good karma to come along to cleanse us, to balance the scales. We're thankful for that, but we also acknowledge that many times we try to perform our way into wholeness. We acknowledge that we can't meditate enough or volunteer enough or go to church enough or give enough to cleanse ourselves before a holy God. And we do confess to you that our, our greatest moral and, and religious performances fall way short of your glory. We can't make our way to you. We're also grateful that we don't have to. You have provided the way, full access, Lord, to the most holy place because you are the source of our new life. You are the source of our truth. You are the source of our unlimited forgiveness, and we need it every day. Be at the center of our camp, God, so we can see you, so we can hear you, and, God, we can listen to you and experience the joy of being set free. In Jesus' name, amen.